you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, we're calling this series called Both And, and we're taking the next four weeks to unpack the different themes of Advent. So we've got hope, we have peace, we have joy, and we have love over the next four weeks. But what we wanted to do here is I was talking with a friend a year ago, and a year ago, they mentioned how um, just navigating what it's like to, to hold the tension of Christmas season um, in their lives. Because we know that Christmas is it's the most wonderful time of the year, and yet for many of us, it's often one of the most painful. We recognize that there's a blessing that comes with Christmas, but that it's also incredibly stressful with events going on and activities. And, and we try to just keep our heads straight long enough to get through the Christmas season rather than to be able to enjoy and to be able to sit and rest in the Christmas season. We recognize that we have certain traditions that we have every single year that we look forward to. Like I just, uh, I got really excited that I got to listen to Christmas music uh, starting yesterday. Cause I'm like, I'm a, I'm a firm post Thanksgiving Christmas music listener. That's not for everyone. That is descriptive of what I do, not prescriptive of what y'all need to do. But just one of those where it's just really exciting to be able to listen to music and we're gonna enjoy decorating the tree and all these traditions. And yet, when we have traditions, when things start to change, we, uh, they stand in stark cr- contrast to the transitions we experience. When things are no longer as they were, and we look back longingly, but we also can hurt presently, even though we still want to hope for the future. And so we have all these different ideas of both and, that Christmas is both great and also difficult. And it is because of both of those things that the season has an extra or maybe a, a weightier feel to it. And so what we want to unpack is to look at how hope, peace, joy, and love over the next four weeks have a both-and quality. And what we're going to do specifically is look at four passages in the Old Testament that God talks about, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, Jesus and then Paul refer to these four specific things and say, just as this happened in the Old Testament, so Jesus fulfilled it in the New Testament. And so we're going to see this pattern, we're going to see this type, we're going to see this consistency here that in both the old and the new, we point towards Jesus and how we handle both the difficulty of the season and the beauty of it. That somehow, some way, we see that beauty in the midst of difficulty is exactly what the incarnation, what Jesus did by becoming, being fully God, becoming fully man and coming into a dark world. And so how do we live with hope, peace, joy, and love coming out of that? Now, what I want to do is I want to introduce this week's sermon. So that was like the series, really brief overview. This week's sermon is talking about this idea of both ideal and real. How we have this concept where we want to make sure it looks like everything's good as it is, that we want to have all the decorations just right. And for many of us, this is a time of the year that we send out Christmas cards. So a couple years ago, um, I didn't have access to the one last year, but here's the Christmas card that we sent out last uh, two years ago in 2020. So let's go ahead and go to the picture here. And you know, it's, it's very cute. Also, uh, Shaylin and Lise have a both 
grown at least a head's worth over the past two years, and it's crazy. But you know, it's like this nicely posed, Steph found shirts that, and dresses that would like blend together, and it looks really nice. And this is great. And for the most part, taking pictures as a family goes okay. But if you've ever tried to have family pictures, you know that it doesn't always go that way. In fact, this is one I saw that was a joke card, but you could still purchase it. Let's go to the next slide here that says, really beautiful picture. And this is what it says. This card has zero resemblance to our actual lives. Wishing you the happiest of holidays, the Smith family. Because there's this idea we want to present the ideal picture of our family, literally like a picture, but also the ideal image while recognizing there's difficulty behind the scenes. And so in order to illustrate this, I wanted to, uh, there's another church that put together a family series called The Ideal Family. And they have this one minute, less than one minute video that maybe gives us a little bit more insight into this dynamic of the ideal family photo and then the reality of what's behind that. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the screens for a moment. Can anyone relate taking family photos and being like, okay, everyone get together and don't put your hand on me. And those are the grown children who are saying that, right? So uh, just acknowledging the fact that there's this tension between the ideal we want to portray to the world and the real that's going on in our lives. And so here's what we're going to talk about. Here's our main point. As we look at Genesis chapter 3 this morning and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to follow along with us, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 for a portion of it and 1 Corinthians 15 for the latter portion of it because we need to unpack this truth. And the truth is, is that when we realize that our world is an ideal, we long for a hope that is real. When we realize that our world is is not ideal, that, we, that the world does not have everything together. And some of you may say, that's not a hard thing for me to grasp right now. Things are really difficult in the world around me. And so when things are really difficult in the world around you, when there's, a, when there's the um, waves and the wind and the struggles and the difficulty, what is that anchor for our soul? That Hebrews 6 says it's our hope in Jesus is the anchor for our soul. We long for a hope that can stabilize us in the midst of the storms that can, we can hold fast to when we're trying to let go of everything else and a hope that we can rely upon. Because we think of hope, and as, as we read in the um, Advent reading, hope is not a wishful thinking. It is a confident trust and expectation in who Jesus is. Tertullian, who was uh, a theologian from the uh, 100s, the early centuries here, he talked about how hope is patience with the light or with the lamp lit. It's the idea that we're waiting for someone to come, but we're not just waiting passively. We're waiting expectantly. We're going to keep the light on for you, just like the Motel 6 commercials for the past 97 years. But recognizing that it's this idea of what it looks like that when we long for, when we realize the world is an ideal, you, I, all of us, we try to find our hope 
and place our hope in something else. Whether that's another person, whether that's productivity, whether it's possessions, whether it's popularity, whether it's power, whether it's success, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, we will all try to find hope in something and hoping that it's real enough to withstand our difficulties. But only the hope we have in Jesus is the real hope that we can hold fast to. So we're going to unpack this a little bit together. And we're going to start looking at talking about this. When the world was ideal, we said the world, was, the world has never been ideal from any of our experiences. That there's always been brokenness, always been poverty, always been difficulty, always been strife and conflict. But there was a time when the world was ideal. We see this in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. And every, at the end of every day, he would create and say, it was good. It was good. And in fact, it ends at the very end of Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The idea that there was a time in history that the world was as it should be. That there were animals, but there was not strife between the animals and people. That there were plants, and there was food, and there was still work. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that work wasn't a result of the fall. The fact that work would be difficult was a result of the fall. But we were called, and God looked, and he said, this was good. This is how I want this. This is the plan, and this is what I'm, I want for my people. The, the fact that God could walk amongst the people in the garden and to be able to interact with them, to have a relationship with them, and that the only requirement was that we could, the people, Adam and Eve, could eat out of any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that they were going to live forever, and they were going to be able to trust that God would be able to know what was right and wrong, and they would trust his words. And yet, the world was ideal, but that was short-lived in regards to our experience. Because it only takes until the third chapter of the Bible until sin became real. And when sin became real, the created order got all shifted upside down. As we heard in the video, the idea that creation has been thrown in subject to frustration, as Romans 8 and 9 talk about, subject to frustration because of sin. That this wasn't just an individual sin that Adam and Eve did. It was something that threw off the plan that God had to be with his people. And so... What I want to do is I'm not going to put the, all the verses on here, but I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 6 through 12. You can follow along. And we're going to just look at this here. This, this is after the serpent comes, the devil comes and tempts Adam and Eve. And he specifically tempts Eve and says, listen, if you take the food, the fruit, you're not going to die, which tells us what our temptation is to believe that sin has no consequences. And that you will be able to be like God and to be able to see and know right and wrong, which tells us what? That our temptation is to, one, think that consequences don't exist, and number two, to think that we can be the ones, we are the ones that are in charge of right and wrong, rather than trusting in God and his words. And so Genesis 3, verse 6, starts off with this. He says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God came to them, or called to the man, Where are you? 
He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And we'll stop there, one, because whenever we're confronted with our sin, what do we often do? We often put blame on someone else. That Adam says, you know, the woman you put here with me, she's the one that did it. But notice that Adam was right there with her when she was tempted. So Adam should have known better. Eve should have known better. We don't place blame on one or the other specifically, but recognize they both fell because they didn't trust the words of God and they wanted to have something that was desirable to eat, so there was pleasure there, but then also to gain wisdom to make themselves the lords of their own lives. And so we look at this, and because of this dynamic, we see that we all have sin in our lives. This is something that we know we all experience. We talked about recently how even our thoughts will show us that as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that when there are things that if you hate someone in your heart, that's the same as murder. If you lust after someone in your mind, in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So this is this idea that we recognize all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And as Paul said that he was the chief of all sinners, we all can say that alongside with Paul because we know our sin and our thoughts more than anyone else can other than God. And if that was the end of God's story, then we would be left hopeless. But it's not the end of God's story. And there's tension that we feel, just like Advent is a time in which we look back, as we saw in the video, in order to look forward. We remember that because sin was, has become real, all of us, you, me, all of us, we experience this idea of being homesick and hope-sick. Homesick and hope-sick. I was reading an article about nostalgia. Nostalgia, we talked about a couple years ago, comes from these two Greek words. And it wasn't a word that was used in ancient Greek, but it was one that in the 1600s, 1700s was applied to this idea of nostos, which is like a homecoming or home, and then algos, which means pain. And so it's this idea of a pain that comes from longing for home. It's a homesickness. And so we start to think about this idea that at the time, this was something that people thought, the scientists thought, doctors thought, that this was an actual medical situation. So what they would do, some of the early treatments of homesickness would be that they, would, they thought that there would be an actual nostalgia bone or an actual, an actual part of your body that needed to have the nostalgia, the homesick pain to be able to be removed from you. So they would put leeches on patients who had nostalgia in order to try to suck the melancholy out of them. That they would try to, um, they would send people, if they were soldiers, there was a certain song um, that a military in, the, in Europe hundreds of years ago that reminded of the soldiers of home, so playing it in order to weaken the resolve of those soldiers was considered a crime. That nostalgia, yes, some doctors say go back to home and that will be the cure, but others thought leeches would work, others would think a jab pain would hurt and try to poke it out of you. Others thought that, or some military leaders decided that in order to curb and to stop nostalgia, because it would weaken the resolve of the soldiers, that the first case of nostalgia that was experienced within the troops, that that person would be put to death in order to scare the nostalgia out of them. So, this is something that is ingrained in us that we long 
for home, that we long for how it was before. And of course, our story with Christmas nostalgia is very, is not as much as, you know, we need to bring leeches here as part of our advent in order to remove that from ourselves, right? The idea is acknowledging that we have things that we look back. There are songs that you and I listen to that take us back to our childhood. There are traditions that we remember that fill us with warmth and we want to keep those going as we grow older. There are meals that we have that are specific to this time. There are things that we do because it's a reminder of how things were and we long to go back to how things were. And yet, there's that phrase with the idea that we can't ever truly go home again. About a year and a half ago when I went to go see how my mom was doing um, and drove up there, it's, it's a lot of the things are the same and yet so much is different. Home is never, when we revisit it, it's never as good as we remembered it being. We, we think, oh yes, I remember that. Oh, but do you remember when, you know, there wasn't 17 Starbucks on the street? Ah, oh, the good old days. Or we think about, oh, look at these apartment buildings used to be grove trees, and I remember playing there as a kid. And, you know, we have these moments where even the semblance or the resemblance of home causes us to achingly long for the home we can no longer return to. We have this dynamic of homesickness. And I would posit that this comes back to the longing for what was lost in Eden. See, if we continue on in Genesis 3, let's go to the next slide. It says this, the Lord God made garments of skin. This is after he gives the different curses. This is after he prophesies to the serpent that the, the woman's seed would crush his head, even though the serpent would try to bite the heel. And so it's the first prophecy showing that Jesus will triumph over evil. But after all of those things, they had tried to sow fig leaves over themselves. They tried to cover up their own Shame, And yet only through the shedding of blood can that happen. The Lord God made garments of skin for animals that were there. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Go to the next slide. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, some of us that are like, well, God, why are you so mean? Like, why are you restricting someone from something they really want? It's because God knows what's really best. And then if we were to think that we could be in charge and then we were to buy into the lie that, cons- that sin has no consequences and that we think we could be in charge of our lives, does this sound familiar with our culture, friends? It's thinking that we are the ones that will live forever. Sin is no consequence. There is no objective right or wrong or truth. And because of that, I can determine what's right or wrong for me. And yet, if we all lived just for us and then we all lived forever, the world would be even worse than it is now because we'd all fall into our selfish motives. We would all seek our own sin motives and we would all fall into depravity. If that was the end of the story, we would be left hopeless. There's a quotation I want to share here that says this, the human race is homesick for Eden. 
which only two humans have ever known. We spend our lives chasing peaceful delight, following dead ends or cul-de-sacs in pursuit of home. We know intuitively that we've wandered. What we don't know is how to return. Our lives are largely the story of the often wrong and occasionally right turns we take in our attempts to get home to happiness with a capital H, which is God himself. And I would say that we could even replace this capital H word not with happiness, but with hope. That we are hope sick because we are longing for ways to fill in the gaps in our heart and in our soul that have been rippled throughout history that started with the fall of man in Eden. So we try to find our hopes in what people think of us and what we have and our success and how good our kids are and the amount of money. I mean, whatever it is that we put our hope in or we put our hope in another person and think, okay, if this person thinks well of me, then I am valuable. And yet the only person that we could ever truly place our hope in is Jesus Christ. No other human could ever be enough to hold, withstand the weight of all of our hopes and all of our dreams. And yet because we long for Eden, we long for that relationship with God that you and I were created to have from the beginning. We walk this world until or unless we find a relationship with Jesus, we walk it hopeless. We may try to find other things and other people to fill that gap, but it's like a band-aid over a surgery wound. It might cover for a while, but eventually it'll fall off. And we go searching for something else to cover up our shame, our pain, our wounds, our heartache, and our hopelessness. So what do we do? Because if that's the end of the story, then we would be living hopeless. In a thrill of hope devotional that I have, there's a quotation, and I'm going to paraphrase it here, that talks about how if we talk, well, let's put it this way. It's possible to have peace and it's possible to have joy and it's possible to have love when things are going well. In fact, we often especially feel God's love when, the world, when things around us are going smoothly. We definitely feel his peace when there's the absence of conflict. You know, we love enjoying God when things are joyful around us. Do you know that hope, as this devotional says, hope to some degree cannot exist without a sense of hopelessness. That a light that shines in the darkness doesn't shine as brightly when it's filled with a room filled with light. That it's the darkness in and of itself that as we shine brightly that the hope is patience with the lamplit. And so we acknowledge that this world is not ideal. Our lives, as much as we would like to present them as being ideal, are not. That as often as we may post a photo on social media, we don't post the 17 outtakes we took beforehand. We just post the good one because we want to present the ideal. And yet, God doesn't just come to fix or to work on us in the ideal. He comes to work into what's really going on in our hearts and in our souls. So here's where we're at. When we realize the world isn't ideal, we long for a hope that is real. The world was ideal with God in the right relationship that Adam and Eve had with him before the fall. 
Sin came and it threw everything upside down and God had a plan. He knew from the very beginning that he was going to redeem his people because the seed from the woman was going to conquer and to smash and crash the head of the serpent. So there is a plan and yet all of us are in a state of longing for that Eden, longing for that home. And, and we all try to create our own Edens here where we think, okay, if I can just make my world, my home a place where everything's peaceful, then I'll feel at peace. If I could just make my workplace where everything goes exactly the way I want it, then I could feel peace. If I can do this, if I can do that, and we try to create Eden in a world that no longer can sustain it. And no plan that we have in order to make our lives as perfect and ideal as possible can withstand when things start getting real. So what do we do? Rather, what did God do about the ideal, the homesickness we feel because of how bad things are and how real that is? See, Christmas is the time. Christmas is when the ideal has become real. We see this in Romans chapter 5. We start to see the pattern of how Adam represented one thing in the Old Testament and then Jesus fulfills it in the new. Here's what Romans 5, here's what Paul says in Romans 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. That's when the law came. And even over those who did not sin by breaking his, a command. As did Adam, excuse me, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. I'm going to stop there for a moment. This idea of pattern, is, it's another word for type. And this is what we're looking at over the next four weeks, including this week. That there are patterns from the Old Testament that get fulfilled in the New Testament. And we're not, you could create patterns if you want. But what I feel comfortable doing is to look at the ones where either Paul or Jesus himself referred to something in the Old Testament and talked about how Jesus fulfilled it. So we're not going to do conjecture. We're going to go do scripture. And we're going to look at what the word says about it. So this says here that Adam is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gifts that came by the grace of that one man, of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? What is this telling us? This is telling us that in this season, what Jesus did for us is that in the same way that through Adam, the world got turned upside down. Because of, through Adam, we saw sin permeate and has reverberated throughout history and still destroys and steals and kills the joy that we're meant to have. That sin in our fleshly nature through one man has led to death. And if that was the end of the story, we would walk around life hopeless. But Jesus... But Jesus in his infinite love comes down to a hopeless world and gives hope. We are hope sick. We are looking for things to fill that up. We are homesick, longing for relationship with God in Eden. Not Eden, the actual physical location, but Eden as in the relationship with God that we have always been created to have. The relationship with God that is still an offer put upon the table for each of us if we were to come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. We are able to have a right relationship with Jesus and a right relationship with God. And so... Here's what it means, is that Jesus came. He came so that we may have hope in a hopeless world. He came acknowledging that there's darkness, and he came to shine a light in the midst of it. 
Hope can't exist if everything's perfect. Hope comes when the darkness surrounds, when the despair impedes upon us, and when the difficulties and the storms outweigh what we think we can handle. But there's a glimmer of hope. Here's how Timothy Keller unpacks this idea, the ideal and the real. He says, go through the history of philosophy. They're always arguing, what is more ultimate, the absolute or the particular, the one or the many, the ideal and eternal or the real and the concrete. But the doctrine of the incarnation breaks through those binaries and categories. Emmanuel means the ideal has become real. The absolute has become particular, and the invisible has become visible. The incarnation is the universe-sundering, history-altering, life-transforming, paradigm-shattering event of history. See, the ideal God sent Jesus, who's fully God, never sinned, never did anything wrong, and yet fully man. So he was tempted in all the ways that we've been tempted. And yet he did not sin. He was without sin. He was the perfect lamb sacrifice because he never had any blemishes or any time that he fell into temptation. He was tempted, but he never fell into it. And so what this is saying is that the ideal has become real, that God came through Jesus at a specific point in history, and he had a specific life that historians that don't follow Jesus and are not Christians cannot deny that Jesus is real, cannot deny the impact that Jesus has had, both within that small section of the world 2,000 years ago, and then how his love has rippled throughout the generations and throughout the world. No one can deny that Jesus is the central figure of all of history. The ideal, fully God, became man. The ideal became real. He became a baby who cried, a baby who was fussy. I don't know, maybe he put himself to sleep and like that was the first miracle. I don't know, but he became real. He had skinned knees. He had bad breath. He had times when his stomach hurt. He had times when he was hungry, times when he was thirsty, times when he was hurting, times when he was so stressed that blood started to seep out of him in the garden of Gethsemane. Fully God became fully man. And this miracle of the incarnation is the central point of it all. That we love and we celebrate, and of course, we find our hope in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But if Jesus was just a really good teacher, a really good man, without being fully God, then his death has no power to cover us of our sins. Without the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection don't have the same impact eternally. So let's unpack in the last few minutes we have together the hope that is real. The hope that is real. This is when we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 15, which is our closing section for this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we start in verse 19. This whole passage, when I first became a Christian, I had a small group leader. He was a, another uh, college student, a couple years older than me. And he said, what's the most important chapter in the whole Bible? And, what, and I was, for me, I was like, I love Romans 8. Like, that is my favorite chapter, um, and, and it's fantastic. And he's like, oh, that's a good answer, um, which was a nice way. But he was saying that 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter upon which so much of our faith hinges because it emphasizes the importance of the resurrection. It emphasizes the fact that there is life beyond this world. 
and that Jesus, by resurrecting, can give us hope so that we can live. Starting in verse 19, it says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. Why is that? Well, think about the, old, the, the New Testament church. They were people who were martyred for their faith, tortured, imprisoned, that they did not think that giving their lives to Jesus would allow them to have health and wealth prosperity gospel. Based on the worldly standards, Jesus lost. He never became king in Jerusalem. He never uprooted the Roman Empire. According to the world standards, Jesus lost. And so if our hope was only for this world, if the disciples only had hope that Jesus would become the king of Israel and to sit on a throne in Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman Empire, then their hope was lost. And yet the hope is not just for this world that we long to live for God and we follow Jesus, knowing that things in this world may never be ideal. But it's in the reality of that that we're able to find our hope. We continue on. The Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Friends, this is the verse that we're landing on because it points that in the same way there's a, something from the Old Testament, Adam, the man through whom sin came, Jesus became the second Adam. He became the true Adam. He became the one that took all of that sin and death and he died so that we may have eternal life, so that we can become alive. As I've heard it said before that Jesus didn't come to make bad men good, he came to make dead men live. He came that we may have life and life to the full. It continues on in 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit lower. And as for you, excuse me, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? This is Paul writing. Why, why are we experiencing this? This is down in verse 30. I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Paul points us, he shows us that if our hope is only for this world, then we're going to lose. But if our hope is for another, there's no way we can lose. If the hope is just for this world, we can't win. But if the hope is for a world beyond, we can't lose. As Jim Elliott, uh, who was a missionary who laid down his life with four others um, in Ecuador, a couple decades ago, several decades ago, that he who is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to receive what he cannot lose. He laid down his life here on earth so that he could experience eternal life because of the gospel. Now, J.I. Packer says it this way, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of a pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Remember we learned about the peace of glory in the video? hope of glory because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Friends, when we realize that this world is an ideal, we long for a hope that is real. You and I know, even if you're someone who, has, who does not follow Jesus and, and, and we're so grateful that you're here and that you're sitting and we're able to talk through these things together, but even you would know that this world is not as it should be. You'd acknowledge that this is not 
how things should be. We long for, we have this nostalgia, this homecoming pain that does not go away because there's leeches who suck the melancholy out of us. We recognize that this homesickness for right relationship with God found in Eden can only be rectified and remedied. Not by leeches who suck out blood and melancholy, but by Jesus who, through his blood, while experiencing brokenness and melancholy, laid down his life for us. That we too ought to live for others. So as we close this morning, there's a lot of information, a lot of general topics. What, what I want to encourage you to do, or I want to just mention, is this idea that what does it look like to, to live in hope? What does it look like for us to do, take what we learn here and go from here? So what I want to do is I, I think I've showed this before, and if I have, um, that's great. And if I haven't, that's great. Um, but I want to show, share with you a spoken word that I did um, at my previous church in the gymnasium, um, that had that talked about the power of hope specifically in this time of Christmas. And so if we could uh, turn your attentions to the screens, we'll watch this for the next three minutes or so, and then we'll close out our sermon. Oh, Christmas lights. Oh, Christmas lights keep shining on. As we drive through our streets listening to Christmas songs, we pass them without thought because we've got Christmas all wrong. We focus more on buying presents than the presence of God's Son. See, the first Christmas light could not have been stranger. It came to shepherds in fields keeping their flocks from danger. It was the glory of God speaking through an angel proclaiming that the hope of the world was born in a manger. And shortly thereafter, there was another light in the sky. It was a star pointing wise men to where the Savior did lie. And when they came to him, their one and only reply was to bow down and worship and place gifts at his side. And soon, the sound of hope started to resonate throughout the land. It came to the lost, the sick, and the socially banned. It was the good news that a new kingdom was at hand. The kingdom of God brought by Jesus, son of God and of man. And when they took him off that cross that was stained crimson, they put him behind a stone and thought it would imprison. But on the third day, the light of the angel did glisten, saying, listen, he is not here, he is risen. He's the light of the world and he came down to save us. Though darkness surrounds and tries to dissuade us, he's the hope of the world and his love is contagious. So may his light, his love, and his hope invade us. So how do Christmas lights and the hope of the world meet? Well, which light will shine brighter on your street? The light on your house and hanging from your tree or the light in your heart to love all those you see? Because the light we have inside of us is because of the man who died for us, who will always be beside of us and wants to shine bright through us. So are you living as a light that illuminates the dark? Do you point others to Jesus like the wise men were by the star? Do people know the hope of the world lives in your heart? And do you bow down and worship him with all that you are? 
because we must become less so that he can shine more. We must have a love and a heart for the poor. We must have compassion for all who walk through our door because then the sound of hope will resonate in the land once more. So I'm gonna ask everybody to raise up your glow stick. And as you leave here tonight, let this be the focus. This is your light. And you can bring hope to the hopeless because a city on a hill cannot go unnoticed. So when you see these Christmas lights, think upon God's son because soon these Christmas lights will be faded and gone. But here, take this glow stick, you're being passed his baton and it won't be Christmas lights but God's light that will keep shining on. Oh. It always feels a little awkward to like throw your attention to a video of me. Um, but I thought you should know it was me because I'm not wearing glasses and I wasn't sure if you'd recognize me. Um, no, recognizing this, here's, here's, here's where it's at, okay? This whole sermon's about ideal and real. That video looks pretty good, you know, like it went well. It, the reality is, is that about the third stanza out of eight, I forgot my lines completely. And I was standing there in the middle of a st uh, platform in the middle of thousands of people and it was the moment when they showed like a really awkwardly close-up of my face where I got like thrown off. I was like, oh, is that what my freckle looks like? And then all of a sudden, like I just don't even forget, I forget what I'm saying. And it was one of those where it was hard because that was like the linchpin. That was the, everything else were, were, were really cool mo moments, but that was like the gospel. And if you came that first night, I fumbled through it. But isn't it encouraging that God doesn't just use ideal people to share the gospel. God shares real people like you and me. And when we forget our lines or don't always know what to do, God can work through that. But here's what we need to do. We need to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. When you see Christmas lights and you drive through your, your neighborhoods over the next month, think about how you can shine like a light in the darkness. When you meet your neighbors, think about how can you be a light and encourage them? How can you bring hope in a place that is dark? How can you bring beauty in a place that is filled with ashes just like Jesus did? How can you bring God's ideal love into a real broken world? Because hope can't exist without some degree of hopelessness. But let us be bearers and ambassadors and bringers of hope to keep shining God's light to those around us, not just over the next four weeks, but throughout our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you are here with us today. We thank you for the fact, Lord, that we have hope, and it's not hope based on any other person. It's not hope based on what we can do on our own. It's not hope based on anything other than who you are, Jesus. That if our faith and Jesus is only for the rewards we get in this world, Lord, then we are to be the most pitied that we are missing the boat. But Lord, if, and because hope is not just for this world, but it's for the next as well. We recognize that we're not missing the boat, but we might be in the boat in the midst of a storm and we need to cling to the anchor of hope, which is our faith in you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give hope to people in this room or watching online that are feeling hopeless. Help them to know that hopelessness is not the end of your story, 
Because Christmas is when Jesus, you as the ideal, became real. And when we realize the world's not ideal, we long for a hope that is real that can only be found in you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.